Hello. You have discovered the Felon File. Felonfile.com is a podcast exploration and discussion of law enforcement, history, issues, and incidents in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere. Felon File is hosted by Scott Lunsford, retired police detective, sergeant, author and researcher. The Shade of Blue Stories for Felon File Today Scott looks at an investigation from 1846, 175 years ago. Was it murder? Did the pretty young wife do it? Did she do it twice more? Scott has the story. Background music track unspoken by Mew. The sponsor for today's episode of The Felon File is Robin's Art and Jewelry. Special designs for that special person, or for the special you. Robin's Art and Jewelry. Scott, we're recording. Thank you, Victoria, for the introduction. And as Victoria said, welcome to Felon File, a discussion and look at crime and punishment, the good guys, the bad guys, law enforcement issues from the past and the present, too, in the Appalachian Mountains and elsewhere, just about anywhere we find or may find something of interest that we think you guys might be interested in. And I am your host, Scott Lunsford. In today's Shade of Blue story, we're looking at a crime that occurred in 1846. And the question is, was it a crime? Let's listen to the facts and you can make your own decision about this. 1846, 175 years ago, that's 15 years before the American Civil War started, where some students from the Citadel opened up fire on Fort Sumter. And April 12, 1861, yes, uh, North Carolina-born President James K. Polk in 1846 declared war on Mexico on the 13th of May, 1846, after disputes regarding the admittance of the former Mexican province of Texas into the Union became an issue in 1845 and the disagreement over the location of the Texas-Mexican border boiled over into violence and armed opposition on both sides. Two weeks later, on the 22nd of May, Governor William A. Graham of North Carolina called for volunteers. This is early in the war, and the state of North Carolina raised 32 individual companies to fight in the Mexican-American War. Also at that time frame, a Mr. Thomas Day, a free African-American cabinet maker, operated the state of North Carolina's largest furniture-making business in Milton, North Carolina, Coswell County, and that was actually the start of one of the biggest moneymakers and businesses in the state of North Carolina, uh, the furniture business. Now at this time in North Carolina early history, the only passage from the Atlantic Ocean to the Sound 
protected by North Carolina's Outer Banks was through Okacroke Inlet, an entry that supported small but a thriving village and community on Okacroke Island, and especially uh, Portsmouth Island. Now that changed in September of 1846. A lot happened in that year. A powerful, slow-moving uh, tropical storm rearranged everything and opened the Oregon and Hatteras inlets, changing transportation patterns along the coast to this very day and wrecking havoc at sea and along the coastline at that time. And as we've mentioned before, changes in people and changes in nature are very common and very normal. That same year, 1846, Alexander Simpson moved from upstate New York to Fayetteville, North Carolina. Now, using family funds, he started a carriage-making business with his own shop and a small staff of workmen. His business did good work, and the carriage products were well in demand and sold well. Now, he was also popular with his neighbors and others in about the town of uh, Fayetteville. According to write-ups in the Fayetteville newspaper at the time, he was much liked and respected. Uh, to quote a line from a society section of one of the papers, Troops of friends cheered him on. None knew him but to love him. Maybe a little bit of an overkill, but apparently he was very well liked, or of the habit of picking up the check quite often at, when everybody went out to eat. Don't know. It also should be noted that Alexander Simpson a known hypochondriac, a chronic complainer about his delicate digestion tract. He was often seeing doctors or under the care of one doctor or another, and he was known to keep bottles of medicine in quick and easy reach at home and at work. Now, this didn't stop him from moving around in the Fayetteville society circles. Being a well-off bachelor in his 30s, he was able to attract the attention of, of several young ladies of the community. One young lady in particular, an attractive young lady, about half his age as a matter of fact, Miss Anna. And when I look at the dates of birth and backtrack the ages, they began dating when she was 15 years old and he was somewhere in his mid-30s. But back to our year of 1846, they got married. Perhaps the best description of her is from a police document and also from a governor's bench warrant. The writer putting down, she's a woman of small stature, has very black hair, a dark complexion, large black eyes, a small nose, and a large mouth with her upper lip slightly protruding. Now, this description later comes into play in a follow-up on this particular story, so we'll get to that in a little bit. Alexander provided his new wife with a very comfortable two-story house and hired servants to wait upon her and him. And on a side note, the house still exists and is on the list of public historic buildings in the city of Fayetteville, North Carolina. You can go by and take a look at it and see it if you wish. And it is quite an interesting building, architectural-wise. Now, Alexander also rented rooms in the big house to two of his workmen, a Samuel Smith and an A.H. Whitfield. 
Now, being young and attractive and not having much to do, not working anywhere, Anna became a popular fixture about Fayetteville society and around town. One of her favorite pastimes was to visit a local fortune teller in one of the more seedier sections of downtown Fayetteville, a Miss Polly Risling who apparently had a reputation as a pretty good soothsayer or fortune teller. Now the first three years of their marriage was very typical for the time period. But living with an older man who was preoccupied with his work and his health started to sour a bit and Anna started seeing and being seen in the company of other males and female friends as well. Anna was also visiting her fortune teller two to three times a week. Now the visits of men to the house and talk about town led Mr. Simpson to start thinking, you know, something just not quite right at home. Now three years in the marriage life and having heard enough town gossip, one morning Simpson left a note for his wife and then went to work. The note saying, Anne, I once thought you loved me, but now I have reason to suspect that you love another better than me. For the sake of your friends, you may stay, but you must find your own clothes. Prepare a bed for me upstairs tomorrow. You can no longer be my wife. End of note. Now, Anna showed this note to her dressmaker and Miss Nancy. Later, Miss Nancy testified to, in court to what the note said. And that is how we know the contents of the note. It actually became part of a court record. I guess you could equate that with basically posting something on the internet uh, today and it never going away. It's forever in the court record. Now Miss Simpson told her dressmaker that her husband need not have turned into a fool now. By the way, that is a direct quote from the court record. As the man to whom he thought she was in love with had been visiting the house ever since they had been married. This witness said that she had often heard Miss Simpson say that she loved someone else better than her husband, that she loved and was engaged to this man before she married Simpson, but that her friends and family had kept them apart and that she had married Simpson only to get a home and to please her family. Well, of course, the money didn't hurt none too much either, I'm sure. Now, in the conversation, the seamstress worried that Mr. Simpson might try to kill this man he thought was seeing his wife. Now, Anna shrugged that off, saying that he knew better than to do that. On the day after this conversation, the uh, seamstress witness testified that Miss Simpson was packing up her things and getting ready to leave her husband, who she said had been put out with her. Now, Miss Simpson told Nancy Register, that Polly Risling, the fortune teller, had predicted that she and Simpson would live together only five years. Now, three of those years had passed already, saying that she believed the fortune was going to come true now. Now, time went on, and apparently some apology or understanding came about between Anna and her husband, as they once more became cordial to one another, and the talk of moving Anna out of or Simpson at least moving out uh, of the bedroom was soon forgotten. On the night of November 8, 1849, 
at dinner, Anna served a special dessert with the family meal. For her husband and her employees that boarded at the house, uh, there was a glass tumbler of a mix called Sayabub. Sayabub? I'm probably mispronouncing that. It was placed by each meal. Now, you might ask what Sayabub is. Well, it's like a pudding dessert. It's a sweet dish from a Cornish recipe, Cornish cuisine, made by curdling sweet cream or milk with an acid, uh, like a wine or a, a cider. Early recipes were made of milk and cider, and but by the 17th century it kind of developed and evolved into a type of dessert made with sweet white wine. More wine could be added to make a creamy punch, but it could also be made to have a thicker consistency that could be eaten with a spoon, much like a pudding. Now, the two boarders, Smith and Whitfield, they were both strong members of the Order of the Sons of Temperance. Translation, ah, they didn't drink alcohol, so they passed on the dessert because of the wine. Now, Simpson ate his and asked for more. Anna told him there really wasn't any more, but offers him hers, and he ate that also. Later, Mr. Smith told the authorities that it had been the practice for after-dinner coffee to be served about this time. Smith would normally receive the first cup, as he liked his with less sugar. Now, this had been the routine since he moved in. But on the night, Anna gave him a cup and asked him to pass it on to Mr. Simpson. Now, habits die hard, and can also get you killed, but the it didn't register with him that he was supposed to pass the cup over to his landlord, and he held it up and started to stir the cup and maybe take a sip while listening to the ongoing conversation between the, his landlord, Simpson, and his associate, Whitfield. That's when Miss Simpson said to him in a very excited manner and with an animated tone to her voice, he said, Mr. Smith, Mr. Smith, that, I say, is Mr. Simpson's coffee. Well, Mr. Smith realized what she had told him and hesitated and passed the cup along to Mr. Simpson, the husband. Or, as the state of North Carolina liked to call it later on, the cup of death was passed on to Mr. Simpson who drank it. Soon after his coffee he started beginning to complain of being sick. To top everything off Anna decided to finish the evening with some fortune telling as she had been taught by her fortune telling associate Polly Reisling. What at this time period was referred to as turning the cup, reading the coffee grounds or the tea leaves, depending on what you were having at the time. According to what the boarders told police later and the coroner's jury, she made the statement, you are going to be sick, Mr. Simpson, very sick. I see a sick bed and someone lying on it, a coffin, dark clouds and a muddy road. Then she went on to say, you know, lovey, 
I had our fortune told some time ago, and we were to live together for five years, have two children who were both going to die, and a third who would live, and then you were to die, and I could marry again. Three years have already passed. Now, she, this makes a point with her. Uh, later, the state would also present evidence that Polly Rising had told Anna that her husband would die in a week. Mr. Simpson was taken very, very ill, very, very sick, and he very rapidly got worse. There was intense burning in the pit of his stomach, nausea, vomiting, and a weak pulse. The next morning, a doctor was called in, and that didn't help too much. The doctor would tell the court later how he observed Miss Simpson place her hand on her husband's forehead, but the dying man, still conscious at the time, had jerked his head away, causing Miss Simpson to say in a comical tone, Ah, you are a touch-me-not. And it didn't take long for Simpson to pass away and die in bed. An autopsy was performed. The results showed that Alexander had been poisoned with arsenic. And it's interesting that during the autopsy, they took the man's stomach out and put it in a box. And the rumor is that the box with the stomach is still somewhere in Fayetteville. Don't know why, but uh, supposedly it was passed around by family members and ended up with an antique dealer who has kept it all these years. What's that on the shelf? Ah, oh, it's a stomach. Anyway, just two days after Simpson's death, a coroner's jury was called, which was the custom in the law at the time. The only suspect discussed was the wife, and she was called to appear before them. There were some very ugly suspicions and terrible questions to be asked. On November 10th, the widow was unable to answer several of the questions to satisfy the jury, and an arrest warrant was soon ordered and made. She was picked up, and a date for trial was set, and the widow was released from jail on a property bond, which consisted of her late husband's house. Several days passed when late one afternoon Anna Simpson packed up two large trunks along with all the money Alexander had left around the house that she could find. Under cover of darkness, Miss Simpson slipped out of town. Some gossip published in the newspapers at the time say she had a companion that night, but there really is nothing to prove that one way or the other. They do know that a man drove her to a neighboring town where alone, Anna Simpson climbed aboard a train which took her to Wilmington, North Carolina, and then south. The lady fugitive stayed briefly in Charleston, South Carolina, taking a room at a hotel on the side street and staying out of sight. Knowing she couldn't stay in Charleston, the long arm of the law would find her there as well. A few days later, she walked into a shipping office located on Lower Bay Street and purchased a one-way ticket, first-class passage, of course, to Havana, Cuba. Anna vowed she would never return to North Carolina. Even Charleston was too close and within reach of the law. Once law enforcement and the courts had found out she had buggered off, the state of North Carolina issued a proclamation 
the governor of North Carolina issued a proclamation that was printed in the weekly Raleigh Register, uh, Raleigh, North Carolina newspaper, uh, dated November 28, 1849, page 1. The order put a $200 reward for the arrest and return of Miss Anna Simpson and her delivery to the sheriff of Cumberland County. Now, keeping in mind that $100 in 1849 is equivalent to the purchasing power of 3496 That's a big increase over the past 172 years. So, double that, that's a good amount of money right there. Close to $7,000 cash reward in modern uh, value anyway, for the location and turning her over to the sheriff. Six months later, Miss Simpson did it on her own. On her own, she appeared, it appeared she had changed her mind and returned in May of 1850. She stepped off a ship and onto the Charleston dock. After a six-month run and hide, she really wasn't ready quite yet to surrender. She did later, though, in November, several months later, surrender to authorities in Cumberland County. According to the newspaper report, Miss Simpson walked into the Cumberland County Sheriff's Office by herself and stated quite simply that she was ready to go to court. Now, this was just one day before it was a full year since her husband's death. She claimed to have left town in her grief and had no idea she was a suspect in her husband's death. Interesting. She would have been there sooner, but she had not left because of her grief, and she was surprised when word arrived in Cuba where she had been staying or hiding after Alexander's death that she was a wanted person. Anna told authorities in the court that when she finally heard that the authorities wanted to talk to her again, she immediately left Havana and headed back to North Carolina. She returned to settle the matter, saying she was innocent. Miss Anna K. Simpson ended up being the first woman in Cumberland County to be tried for murder. When the trial started, the evidence offered up by the prosecution was, in actuality, fairly circumstantial at best. The trial transcripts, all 200 pages of them, are still used in law schools as a teaching aid. And you can actually buy a copy of them on Amazon. In fact, they read almost like a paperback novel. A succession of damning witnesses were paraded to the stands in the courtroom, presided over Judge William H. Battle. Now, for the defense, the lady apparently had a little bit of cash left over because she had, because she was able to put together a dream team of lawyers for that time period, a Duncan McRae and a Robert Strange, who was at some point a lawyer, judge, a novelist, and a U.S. senator later on. He was also the grandfather of Thomas W. Strange, who we discussed who we discussed in episode 5-6 of the Fallon File podcast. 
the podcast The Trial of Thomas Strange on a Murder in 1875. The podcast is still online and available to listen to if you haven't heard it yet. A Mr. Dobbins, who had been a member of Congress for the state of North Carolina and later became Secretary of the Navy, also worked for the defense. Now, Mr. Strange, of course, was a Superior Court judge formerly and also had been a member of the U.S. Senate. And as I said, he was a author of no little repute. Witnesses that were heard from, including the drugstore clerk who documented Anna buying the arsenic, he testified saying that she had told him the poison was for a rat problem she had. Now, the doctors who did the autopsy and how they came up with their ideas and facts of the crime, lawyers from the state read volumes of textbooks documenting and supporting the finds of the doctors. The defense merely countered by calling into question the reliability of the witnesses and of reading from their own textbooks to counter the state's findings on the chemical tests performed. Even suggesting it might possibly have been a suicide and not a murder, that Simpson took his own life. Now, the defense introduced no witnesses, thereby obtaining the concluding argument. They put their focus on the eloquent speaking skills of the defense attorneys. And all a total of five of these elegant speeches were delivered to the jury. Two for the state and three for the accused. And again, they were And the speechifying was excellent, to say the least. For example, uh, the speech of Mr. McRae. Let me read a little bit of this to you. In the words of Mr. McRae, May it please your honor and gentlemen of the jury, I do not come among you today as a stranger, for it was here that I spent my early years, and here the associations of my youth are concentrated. Today I find, as the tenant of a cheerless dungeon one whom I knew in those early days as combining beauty of person with attraction of manner and openness of heart. The glad sunshine and soft breezes of heaven come to her now only through the cold bars of a prison cell. What unusual occasion has called together here a crowd so eager, so intent, so anxious? Well, a man has died. And what is there strange or extraordinary in the announcement of a death? Are we not like the grass in the morning springs that springs up in the evening that is cut down, dried up, and withered? Death is the conqueror of all men. He is in his operations alike introspective of age, of sex, of condition, of time, of circumstance, and of occasion. Do we not see him stoop over the infant on its mother's lap? and cradle it in its cold embrace. Seizing upon the young man, strong and vigorous and proud, bind him hand and foot, and lead him away captive to the tomb. Follow at the elbow of the aged, trottering down the declectives of time. It is appointed unto all men once to die, 
and no man can forfeit his proper share in the inheritance of the grave. Even now many a silver cord is being loosened, and many a golden bowl is breaking. As I speak, many pitchers are broken at the fountain, many wheels are broken at the cistern. Men go to their long homes, and the mourners go about the streets. What is there, gentlemen, strange or extraordinary in the fact that a weak and feeble man should follow the ordinary course of nature, and fall as the leaf falls when autumn is fading? Now, you got to admit, to quote a line from Mel Brooks's movie Blazing Saddles, who can argue with that? That is just an example of the speechifying that went on in the closing arguments that were heard by the jury and the court in general. Now, one of the jurors was an old Scotsman who at one point during the proceeding asked the judge, sending him a message, asked him if somebody just couldn't give the woman a sound beating or a whipping, then just let her go. Corporal punishment for murder. Now that's an interesting thought. After being told no by the judge, the trial continued. After the last closing remarks were heard, the jury deliberated for three hours and then returned with a not guilty verdict. Now did Anne really poison her husband and fool the jury into believing that she was innocent? Or was she the victim of unusual circumstances? She took the truth with her to the grave, and only she and maybe Alexander know whether she had gotten away with murder. On April 17, 1852, the Fayetteville, North Carolinian the newspaper carried the following notice. Married in Charleston, South Carolina, on the 4th, by the Reverend G. Burnham, Mr. Charles Young of that city, to Miss Anna K. Simpson, formerly of Fayetteville. Now, around any good story, there's always rumors and legends. The editor of the Fayetteville newspaper that actually published that, years later, once reported that he had seen Anna Simpson in New York on Park Avenue in a very destitute condition. The editor didn't recognize her at first, but supposedly Anna recognized him from when he was covering the trial, and she approached him and then disappeared into the night. Also, the story is out there that Anna supposedly went to Texas with her new husband where he mysteriously passed away due to an illness. It was also said she had a third husband, alleged to be a Polish gentleman in Minnesota. He passed away due to what was thought to be and testified to as being poisoned by his wife, and she was charged with the poisoning. And that was said to have been Anna K. Simpson from eastern North Carolina. Now at the trial, the jury didn't buy it this time and convicted in hunger during that Minnesota trial. The early untimely death of the second husband was also called into question, or so they say. Friends from North Carolina were alleged to have brought her body back to Fayetteville in the middle of the night and buried her in an unmarked grave between two pine trees. Now was this the true ending of the story? 
The original investigation received a great deal of press nationwide. Like I said before, the court case had been used as a teaching example in law school for many years. And we know those are the facts. We know also as a fact that there was an Anna brought to trial in Minnesota for killing her husband. Was this the same Anna? Personally, I don't think so. The newspaper articles and the police descriptions of the two Annas are not the same. It's probably not the same person. How about the Texas incident? Now, in reading old newspapers that have been scanned and saved over time, I found several articles and short mentions of Anna K. Stevens in Texas. But the problem was that this particular Anna K. Stevens was the daughter of a Mr. Stevens, and that Stevenson, and that Stevens was her maiden name. Now, did her husband die under suspicious circumstances? Well, yes, but I don't think it was our Mrs. Stevens from North Carolina. But as I said, the story got coverage pretty much nationwide and supposedly worldwide. I've not located any uh, foreign newspapers with mention of it yet, but it went everywhere as far as the story goes because it was good reading and the story itself and the story may be an old one but if you killed your husband and your name was Anna you're at some point you may have been linked up to our Anna and here in North Carolina that's our shade of blue for this week I hope you found it interesting it is a true story look it up on Amazon if you want a copy of the trial transcripts it reads like a dime novel. It really does. Be sure to come back next Saturday for another Shade of Blue story here at Felon File. And remember, be safe and be secure in the coming weeks. And if you have the opportunity, do something nice for somebody. It really makes a difference in the world. And there are so many places that you can make a difference. For example, the Red Cross. Currently there are a lot of disasters going on around us in the world. There is the COVID situation. Right now we're having some terrible, terrible weather. Haywood County, not too far away from where I'm at right now, has been declared a disaster area due to flooding and we're at this point 20 people are missing in the flood waters. And let's not forget the people of Haiti who are still trying to recover from the terrible, terrible earthquake that hit there, followed by the terrible storm that also caused flooding that happened here in North Carolina. And of course, the people trying their best to get out of Afghanistan and just to be safe. Keep those guys in your thoughts. Research your charities that you give to. Make sure that they are in transparent with where their money goes or where your money goes. Victoria, go ahead and close us out. We appreciate you all. And
drop us a line here at felonfile at gmail.com. If you have comments, opposing viewpoints, or just want to give us a heads up on a possible Shade of Blue story to research. We look forward to hearing from you guys, and we'll talk to you all next Saturday, 7 o'clock Eastern Standard Time in the USA, and at other times elsewhere. Bye, y'all. You have been listening to The Felon File Podcast with your host Scott Lunsford. For more information on this podcast or Scott's books and writings go to scottlunsfordauthor.com and felonfile.com. Scott can also be contacted at these websites. Be sure to check out the stuff page on the website. Pick up a Felon File t-shirt or coffee mug. You can also support the Felon File podcast by buying us a coffee from the link on the website. This is Victoria your producer. Thank you for listening. 2. 1. End. Background track unspoken by MewSoundCloud.com. Mew Music promoted by Free. Stock Music.com Creative. Commons Attribution 3.0 Unported License. Creative Commons.org.